1: So he was my dad. I call him Pops. He okay. raised me. And then I did have a relationship with my father when he was still around. Sure. And at some point there was an adoption process. Okay, my stepdad's going to adopt me. And then my real dad showed up to like debate it. So it ended up, I think I was like, well, why don't I just have both names? Sure. And that seems like everybody was going to be happy that way. Yeah. You know? So there it was. Well, that's so awesome. So I ended up with the hyphenate. So it's weird. People that know me like from like grade school, I'm little Tommy Levitt. And people knew me like in my early music career, it's like Tommy Armstrong. And then it's all in there and they look at your ID and you're like, what's all these names?
0: Yeah. Well, that's interesting because when I was doing some research on you, I kept finding Tommy Armstrong. I was like, okay, yeah. so Levitt, that makes perfect sense. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's my pops. I actually just got to see him in November. So he retired to Hawaii. That's awesome. Yeah. So you grew up, Bummer. did you grow up in Sacramento? <laughs> Sacramento, I did. We lived in a bunch of places early. I mean, I want to say I was like in 13 grade schools by the time I was in third grade but we were in Sacramento, San Diego, L.A., California, all sure. California, and then in Hawaii. I was in Hawaii, and then we came to Northern California, early grade school, couple schools, and then we moved and got to lay down roots a little bit, so. Right. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, yeah I've grown up
0: all my yeah. life in the Midwest. I've always been in North Dakota, so it's always interesting because people see my videos and stuff on YouTube or wherever, and they always assume that you're from California or something like that.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, you got long hair, you play guitar, you got a couple tattoos. You're from LA, right? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's
0: right. That's awesome. So I see your stuff every day, obviously. Well, for those of you that don't know, Tommy and I hooked up. Tommy is the artist relations guy at EMG Pickups, and I've been playing EMG since the early 90s. So... Before anybody gave a crap about who I was, I was always enamored with EMG pickups. So once my career started picking up steam, I thought, what the heck? I'm going to reach out to EMG and see if they'd be interested in working together. And again, not so much because I want free stuff. I'm too old to worry about free stuff as much as it is. It's just nice being connected to the companies that you love. So I reach out to Tommy And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to be connected to the EMG family, love to be endorsed. And Tommy's like, yeah, I've seen your videos, man. I just don't know what we could do with you because all of your guitars already have EMG pickups in it. So since then, I've been connected with EMG. And what I tell you, Tommy has been one of those guys, like easily one of the best friends I have out in the industry. When I travel to go to trade shows and stuff, Tommy is absolutely one of the first guys that I always go looking for. And you always make me smile. You always have something funny to say. And it's super cool
1: you got to keep it light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you do. I mean, that's the fun of it. Is- <laughs> it was hilarious when you did reach out because you're like, well, my name's Steve Stein. I'm like, yeah, I know who you are. <laughs> I mean, you've got a ton of these videos. And coming from a background in music education, it's like, okay, you got to check out all the dude because even though it's all the same information, it's always great to hear somebody else spit out their interpretation or their explanation of any given subject. Sure. So I, was, I dug your videos because I thought you explained everything just, just straight up. You didn't go over anybody's head. You didn't dumb it down. You were just like, here's the information. You explained it in a good way. So I think I told you that when I finally met you. I said, I think I called you the second best guitar teacher I know. (laughs) You did, yeah. That wasn't very nice, but it was how I felt (laughs) at the time. So
0: So it seems like you're doing a lot of different things. Like I know you from the EMG world. And again, I've done some background stuff on you. But let's talk about just a day in the life when you wake up in the morning, because it seems like you must exercise every day. Or something. You do. Okay. And
1: yeah, I do. And I'm not trying to be like a fitness model or anything like that. But like many people, your weight can fluctuate. And so it's, it's always a struggle for me. And basically, it really comes down to food more than anything. And you know who drove that into my head was Zach Weil. You can work out all day, all the time, all you want. But if you eat crap, <laughs> you're going to look like crap. Right. And, and he's right. So for me, continued... Physical fitness is more of a mental health, as much of a mental health as it is a physical. Absolutely. Of course, yeah, you want to be able to bend over and tie your shoes, and you don't, want to, and you want to be able to have some injury prevention as you get older, right? And, and staying in shape is part of that. It's a big mental thing to me. It's a good way to start the day, clear your head. So, and you're right, start... especially
0: like now in 2022 with all the stuff that's going on out there. It's nice to be able to, I shouldn't say nice, but it's really important to be able to stay in a positive place as much as possible. Because I deal with oh, that. Yeah. Like, I'm getting emails all the time for people that are very frustrated with playing and they can't play out and they can't get together with people. And I'm like, dude, you got it. I mean, whether it's guitar playing or whether it's something else, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You have to find something that keeps you in a in a positive space.
1: It's tough. I spent years being negative about stuff, later learned that it's just unhealthy for you. But the situation that you, I, and everybody else in the world has been in, in the last couple of years, it has been difficult. I remember the beginning of the shutdown, we're like, they claim, hey, we'll probably be home for a couple of weeks until we figure out what's going on. They're, the scientists are scrambling to try and figure out how dangerous this really is because bodies were dropping. So it's like, oh, okay, so it got serious real quick. So both the wife and I got sent home furloughed, you know, no job, really, on a Tuesday night. It was St. Patrick's Day out mm-hmm. here in California, and which is one of our anniversary days. So we're like half celebrating, half not. Like, how long is this going to last? So I tried to be super, like positive and uplifting during our time at home I try to keep us like okay we're gonna get up and we're gonna work out together we're gonna be team Armstrong and she'd had it with me <laughs> she, <laughs> she was real happy when I actually got to go back to work <laughs> oh I'm sure <laughs> she she'd roll her eyes you're trying to keep us on I go well if we just go to the old us we'll get up around noon start day drinking about 12 <laughs> <Yeah>, 30 <laughs> and nothing good's gonna happen from that so fortunate for us we you know had a place to live and we weren't broke necessarily so we just made best with what we could do
0: so you start off like every day then? Do you go, is that the first thing you do in the morning as you go work out?
1: It is. I did take a couple week break in December based on scheduling stuff. I actually coach at a gym also. At a, oh, uh, cool. Uh, coaching now at a place called F45, which is a chain out of Australia, but it's huge. And I guess in Australia, you find them as often as you find a Starbucks here. So now a publicly traded deal, but they're independently owned, but it's a franchise. So it's a super organized fitness program. I coach there and I coached at a, a place before that called FitZone. So it's all high-intensity interval training, and some days are lift days, some days are cardio days. It's a lot of fun, actually, and it's a team training, so it's like P.E. on steroids, sure. you know what I mean? Sure. And so it's funny that all these adults find a love for physical education later right. in life. <laughs> and right. It is fun. So I coach there, and then that keeps me in a routine also because I have to get up and and be able to also lead by example. So you can't just be this big, huge dude and say, come on, do your burpees. Yeah, you got to right, be able right. to you got to be able to do it with them. So I've been coaching in fitness four years. And that's basically was the beginning of my later fitness fine in life, my rekindled fondness for fitness. And it was all just for mental stability, I think, and keep you out of trouble a little bit. Right. That's
0: awesome. I was always a sprinter in in middle school, high school, that thing. And then when I got to college, I became a long distance runner and would do no marathons and half marathons and all that stuff. And When I was playing in bands, when we would travel as a band, we would run, regardless of how much you had to drink the night before, the next morning, you were always up, you know, running eight miles or whatever it might be that we would do. And we did a run across the state of North Dakota. We started in Montana and ran nonstop to the Minnesota border. So what, 340 miles or something like that, and to raise awareness for child abuse and raise money. And during that run, I actually destroyed the big toes of my feet. And just from whatever, I mean, I'm sure it was probably part genetic too, but now I have metal bars that run through. They had to remove the, the joints in my toes. So my big toes don't bend. There's just a bar that runs through there. So this year, as a matter of fact, I'm going to start trying to run again and
1: see how those
0: are impacted.
1: That's when we first met when you still had the cast on your foot. Yes. I remember you yeah. sent me some shots of you playing somewhere yes. and you had the boot on the yeah, foot. right. That's right. And,
0: that's right. So yeah, I'm finally here. I'm 2022. I'm going to start trying to see if I can run again because I miss running. Same thing for you. It's people go well, well, The only time to run is if you're chased by a dog or something like that. Right, right. Well, I feel that way about running. <laughs> <I> mean, yeah. <laughs> see It's always been very therapeutic and it feels like something's always been missing since I've stopped running. So that's my plan
1: this year. Is to yeah. It's so interesting. Some people have that run thing. I've never discovered it in running. I'll go on a scare master, zone out and, and I'll do the treadmill. I'll do the treadmill in doses. Sure. I just have never found that joy of running. So I'm the guy that's like, yeah, it's for when you're being chased. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome.
0: So, so, okay, so you have that EMG. You've got a
1: couple other things that you do too, right? I mean. I do. I do. I used to teach full-time and for many years, actually for almost 30 years. Was that so at Skip's music? <laughs> I started as just, um, uh, I applied for a teaching job, like right out of music school. So a starving student, moved back home. So, I lied my way through the interview process and like I was going to be some badass guitar teacher. And then, I, you know, at the age of, of 20, you pretty much think, oh, this is just filling some time because I'm going to be a rock star. Right. Of course. right. Any day, the right man's <laughs> going to come along. I'll be traveling the world. And so, everybody thinks that when they're 19, 20, yeah, or whatever. That's right. So, they had gotten rid of a guitar teacher. So, I inherited like a day and a half worth of students. So, it was my job to keep them. Here I was straight out of music school, captain information. And it was a rough start. I would like spit out so much stuff. It's just like, here's all the stuff you can do. And I'd get these kids with these eyes like <laughs> huge. Oh my God. And I, so I think I legitimately scared a couple people away. Then I had to step back and, and think, how did I learn? It's part of the teaching process, you learn by doing it. So I ended up getting much better at it. But Skip felt so bad for me because I was basically a starving student. So he hired me a couple months later, to tune guitars downstairs during Christmas, right? Sure. And I remember that was back when there was a lot of crappy guitars. I think all guitar brands have an entry-level guitar now that's decent. Yeah. You know, it was not that way no, back in the not. day. There was a lot of crappy guitars. Oh, yes. So it was like job security. There'd be a row of 30 guitars. <laughs> I'd start at one end and tune them and get to the other end, and then I could just go back and start again <laughs> start because over. they would be out of tune just from <laughs> the air. So he liked me because I was a hustler. So he'd hire me to do other things as I was building up my my students. So – in my teaching, my early times, I started thinking, okay, I think I need some sort of a system. I need to evaluate each person and treat each person individually. But it's like the thing that turned me off from lessons once when I was younger is I went into this guy and said, here's me, here's how I play. And then each time I come in, he goes, so what do you want to do today? So I thought, shouldn't you be in charge of this? I mean, you're like, I don't go to school. and My English teacher doesn't say, so what do you want to do today? So that's when I developed, for me, I started developing a program. And that went for years, me handwriting everything. Until uh, I did have a student that used to drive him nuts. He'd sit there and noodle while I was writing out his lesson. And he'd be like, you need a computer. I go well. Computers cost as much as like a Marshall, so I would just buy another Marshall. Right, <laughs> so, right. And at that time, I think a PC would have cost a fortune. Computers are much more affordable. Yeah. Today, Back in the
0: Hewlett Packard days, yeah, you'd
1: pay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We you know, went from a two eighty nine to the three eighty nine to yeah. the four eighty nine, or you could have this Apple computer that was this big, and you still had to have a floppy disk to put stuff yes. out of it. So you could put, yeah, it was yeah. crazy. But so he goes, uh, you know, you could do all your graphics in a computer and all that. I'm like, really. He goes, yeah, we became friends. So he's my friend Billy from Scotland. So, and he had a brother named Tommy. So there's Billy and Tommy and then another buddy from England named Bill and then me, Tommy. So there's two Bills and two Tommy. So if we (laughs) went drinking, it was horrible. And you need an interpreter with these guys from Scotland. I swear to God, four beers in, they're arguing and you can't understand a thing. (laughs) He says, why don't you come around the house one day and I'll show you what I'm talking about. So I go over and he shows me how to do these graphics. And back then it was in PageMaker, which later on became... InDesign, which is another Adobe product to layout like if you lay out a magazine or newspaper or something. So he showed me how to draw these graphics and you could type something. And, and I'm like, wow, it's totally cool. So he was teaching me now, right? Sure. And he goes, all right, well, here, that computer's yours. He gave me my first computer because oh he was, just had had it with me writing stuff down. He's all, you need to make copies and they need to be legible. Right. <laughs> so... Because when you're teaching, you start writing like a doctor because you're yes. trying to write as quick as you can talk. Yeah, Next thing right. you know, the only person that can read is you, maybe. <laughs> so I did that for almost 30 years. And in that time, I ended up writing some music method books, guitar method books, all just out of necessity. I never planned to like build an instructional empire, but I wrote books because it was like, oh, I like the information from this. There's this information I think should be presented in this way. So you just map out. I mean, we're not inventing this information. We're just presenting it. So I ended up writing a book. Then I got so excited about a follow-up book. I made grammatic errors in the book and went to print and a third one. I had a student of mine find them for me. Oh, nice. (laughs) So when you get this 12-year-old going, so is this right? I'm like, no, that's not (laughs) right, Billy. It's not. Actually, the kid that found them, he's a really incredible guitar player named Luke Yeager. He's like a bodybuilder guy, but he's like this shred proggy gent guitar player. He's ridiculous. Yeah, He was a super focused kid like when he was 12. And so he found the mistake. So I give him the next book for free. Here, why don't you edit this one? (laughs) (laughs) And then I ended up doing five altogether. And right now, I remember going to Nam with prototype mock-up versions of my book in my little backpack. And I was going to go to Hal Leonard and all these guys. So I meet another guy and he go, listen, kid, don't come to us. You're not going to make any money on your book. If you want to make a couple bucks on your book, just put it out yourself. I'm like, consider that, right?" right? I remember going by Mel Bay everybody's heard of Mel Bay. So everybody's last name is Bay at the booth. They have their name tags, right? right. So there's Betty Bay and Rob Bay and Bob <laughs> Bay. And then I see this old guy in the chair and it says Mel Bay. I'm like, oh my God, you're Mel Bay, right? Yeah. This isn't like 1989 or 90 or something like that. Right. And I'm all, Mel Bay, hey, my name's Tommy. Nice to meet you. I'm writing my first book. Do you have any advice? And he goes, yeah. And I'm all, okay. <laughs> so this is the guy. He right. built an empire. And he goes, uh, do you like hamburgers? I went, yeah, I like hamburgers. So in my mind, I'm like, am I going to go have a burger with Mel Bay? Yeah, or right. He goes, good, because that's all you're going to eat. You're going to pack up a trunk of your car with these books, and you're going from town to town. So he told me he'd drive to a town. He'd go to a phone booth, right? For you kids out there, that's this thing they used to make phone calls from. <laughs> and it had a phone book of that town. So he'd open it up, find the local music store, go there, and then BS with the sales staff about his book and try to sell them to him. Yep. Then he'd find the one hamburger stand in town, buy a hamburger. He slept in his car and then drove to the next town and traveled through the Midwest or whatever doing that. And I was like, wow, that is a lot of work. (laughs) And so that was his story. So I took the advice of trying to hustle, do it myself. So I just opened my own publishing company, which means I had to find – it's like making your own album – you want to see if you can find distribution. Sure. So early, I was able to find a distribution company through a friend that I sent mock-up versions. Oh, these are the books. They're just a bestseller in my town of blah, 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 or whatever. And, and these guys went, yeah, I really like the book. We'll take 2000 I was like, oh. So then I had to like borrow money to, <laughs> to like them, yeah. print. Right. Yeah. So, and that's how the beginning of that came. Seven years ago, when we moved here, I had a hard drive destroyed and it was the only copies only digital oh, format man. copies of two of the books so i've been living off the inventory up until about a year ago so now i have to actually rewrite from scratch which is fine you just have to start over but all the files were destroyed i was oh, like man. i can't find a backup cd floppy it's also interesting through years of system upgrades on computers and software upgrades and all that so i did find a couple of files from one of the printers and you can't open them on anything
0: It's funny because now we live in this world where, you know, like for me, when I'm making a video, if I'm doing a three cam shot, they're all 4K, I can do a 30 minute video and there's probably five gig of information in 30 minutes and everything gets uploaded to a cloud. Now I have a hard drive and a backup hard drive and a backup hard drive, all this information that ultimately in my brain, I'm always like, well, then when I'm done, I'll delete it all and I'll just use the hard, and I never do that. I just wind up throwing it in a bin with 15 other hard drives. Right. And see, that's the thing is people, younger kids don't realize that back in the day, you tried to organize all your stuff. Well, there was floppy disks, and then we went to the three and a half or whatever. And then when we got to hard drives, I've done some really cool stuff. Like I had a guy that got a hold of me. He's like, so did you really work with Brian May of Queen? And did you really work with Benjamin Orr? It was actually his wife, Benjamin Orr from the Cars had passed away. Yeah, no,
1: I know. I'm very familiar. Cars was a big deal for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did some writing. This was early on in my career. I was working with a guy out of Nashville, and I was doing these collaborations with these artists. Now, I never got to be in the same room with them. They didn't have a clue who I was. But the fact that I was working on this material, and then I saved all this material onto some hard drive or God knows what, and it's all gone. I don't know where any of it is.
1: I had a hard drive. I'm pretty positive the last version's in. It's a disk hard drive, so it froze. And there's like, well, it's very expensive to try and save information off that. I'm like, okay, so my entire iTunes library was on there? Oh, sure. And so my iTunes library isn't a downloaded, purchased. It's all of my CDs. You know, After painstaking years of importing a disk, you have like way too much. My iPod is like ridiculous, right? right. Kids and iPod. <laughs> right. Just so you know what that yeah, is. Yeah, <laughs> that's right.
0: But you're right. You don't know what he's talking about. We used to have to take the music that we had
1: and upload it onto... Onto iTunes. The library at iTunes didn't have a lot. You that's know, right. There was, purchasing music digitally was not a big thing yet.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, there
1: was no streaming of music at all at that that's point. That's right.
0: So let's go back to when you were a little kid. I always love talking about this. What was your first experience with music
1: where you went, I want to do this? Okay, it's weird because my parents were young. My parents were hippies. So okay. I was immersed in music. So legitimately, this is going to sound like a complete bullshit story, but it's the truth. My mom dragged me to every concert her boyfriend at the time wanted to go to, because hippies just took their kids everywhere. Right. So I was literally at a Jimi Hendrix concert at the age of four. When we moved to Hawaii, and I think I was five or whatever, my mom came to me and said, your Uncle Jimmy died. I'm like, Uncle Jim? I have an Uncle Jim, right? So I was scared. She goes, no, no, the other one we went and saw live, the hippie lady, like, everybody saw is your uncle or whatever. Right. I was always around music. So... I singing, I was in musicals as a kid, I would bang on everything, but I wanted to be a drummer. I legitimately wanted to be a drummer. So that music is your parents' identity. And then you start discovering your own music, right? Right. And stuff that maybe, was like, oh, I want to hear this Kiss record. My parents hated Kiss, you know? (laughs) So I was like, these guys are the greatest thing ever. So (laughs) I wanted to be a drummer at first. So I I reached out to the folks and said, hey, you know, what about drums? And it's like laughter never stopped, right? Right. They're like, drums? Those are expensive and loud, so right, right. they gave me a guitar, and, and they gave me this steel string guitar, acoustic guitar, that the strings are like literally like inches off the fretboard. You couldn't make a note sound like a, anything on that. <laughs> yep. It didn't matter who you were. You could be Al Diniola, and you couldn't play this thing, right? <laughs> so that was frustrating. And then the neighbor guy, who was an auto mechanic, came over and showed me how to tune it, okay. right, by ear and matching the notes. And then I'm like, okay. And then he put it out of tune and handed it to me and says, now you try. <laughs> right. Like, so that guitar sat in the corner of my room for the next, I don't know, two years, right? <laughs> yep. So I was into KISS and then I liked but you start picking your players, it was like Ace Freebie's totally cool. He's from outer space. Of course he's cool. <laughs> it's the reason they play guitar. <laughs> yeah. And then I met this kid a couple years later down the street, and he said, Oh, you got a guitar? So he like tuned up my guitar and started playing this like rock and roll thing. I was like, Oh, so it's possible. Because at that point I just figured all right, these guys are from an alien nation of some sort. They have some special talent. Guitar is just not a possible thing. That is right? a
0: huge revelation when you yeah. realize that, that there are elements of whatever that is that you can actually do.
1: Oh, yeah. And I just had to see somebody like my age, like two feet from me, do it. I was like, oh. So then I go to my folks. I'm like, okay, I, I want to do this. I want to learn to play this. So again, now it came down to like one of my mom's friends, right? right, right. <laughs> it was going to show me a couple chords. I bought this KISS book. So music books at that point were horrible. They were probably tuned down. This wasn't tuned down. It yep. had the open chords, little chord stamps <laughs> written yep, above. The like charts, this, yep. you know, so you had to like, fond- maybe the chord changes over that word, <laughs> you know. And so then I just had to start searching out other kids that played guitar, yep. right? So by then, I, I, now I'm in junior high, and I got a guitar, and I, I'm, I'm horrible at it. I can play like two parts of two things, you know. And then I start meeting other kids that can play right. again. So I'm like, okay. So I became friends. Like, well, how did you do that? Then I'd learn something. And if I learned something from this kid, I'd show that kid. So it became like this exchange program yep. between friends. And then everybody's got that one kid you meet in school who could play anything, right? <laughs> so that was never me. But I would end up being friends with these guys, right? right? And so I'd play guitar, but it wasn't serious. And there was other kids that were more serious. And it was just the thing I did. Then for some reason, like in the beginning of high school, I got super serious. 15, probably, which is kind of a late start, because there's other 15-year-olds that were already playing on albums. (laughs) Right, right. But in in my little world, it seemed like a reasonable start. So I just became obsessed, and we didn't have resources like you do now. I finally had a student one day go, well, it's easier for us than it was for you. I went, thank you. (laughs) And he goes, I mean, practically right now, you can look up your favorite song, and that guitar player will be online teaching you the song he wrote. It's legitimately... But back then, you're going to listen to the record. You're going to move the needle back and listen to it again. And then cassette tapes came out. So you (laughs) stretch the tape
0: out so it wasn't in pitch anymore. Yeah. And yeah, (laughs) I remember
1: a buddy of mine manipulated his so it was down it was slow just a little bit so it was like a minor third off right (laughs) so you'd have to learn it here and then move it back (laughs) (laughs) and my buddy's like oh if you want to learn you stack coins on the inside of the album right so it slows it down just a little because you didn't want to go from 33 and a third all the way down to 16 or whatever the hell it was right and then again i'd meet other kids that were like oh i figured it out i'm like you figured it out i mean you figured it out so it didn't occur to me that there's only 12 freaking notes Okay. Right. So even if you guessed at the note is, you have one in 12 shots at being right. All mm-hmm. right. And then 11 chances that you're wrong. Right. <laughs> so, but I didn't look at it that way. I look, okay. So just figure stuff out. So some of my, I did have one buddy of mine, his name is Jerry Fraser, And this guy could play anything like the Jimmy Page little deal in between Heartbreaker, even down to every flub. Oh, sure. He was like uniquely amazing at that. And then Rhodes came along and that was a game changer. So but you grow up in the. I had abandoned Kiss because I discovered Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith, and these were like these two bands. It was like these are rock bands. One's an American band, one's a British band. They got cool guitar. Right. now, I need to have a Les Paul hanging down past my <laughs> sure, knee. This is be right. my life. And then the bar gets raised again when other guitar players come along. So Eddie changed the world for everybody. I don't care who you are. That's right. And so that came out had already been out. That came out like when I was in junior high. So we're learning everybody else's licks on our way up to that. Right. And then we're going, okay, we'd already listened to all the stuff our parents listened to. I'd already tried to learn a bunch of clapped and I'd already done all that. So now it's the new mm-hmm. stuff. So being an 80s kid, it was cool because you're waiting for these records to come out so you could go get it and learn it. When's the next Priest record? When's the right. next Maiden record? That was funny. When, so uh, you reached out to me about that Maiden tune. And I'm like, I cut my teeth on the first couple of Maiden records, right. right? And then I just became a huge fan and started writing my own music. And you're like, hey, let's do this song. I'm like, oh yeah, I've heard that song a million times. I've never played that song. (laughs) I actually had to learn that song. You start learning from by ear and developing that journey. It's interesting when you say that, though, because quite
0: simply, which is the reason a good teacher is a good teacher, is you don't know what you don't know, right? So when you're a little kid and you're trying to figure this out, like you said, it seems like this stuff is just so distant. And then I had a guy, I wouldn't call him a friend, but a guy that I knew. I remember he played the riff to Looks That Kill by Motley. And I went... But his chords weren't my chords. Like, all I knew were Mel Bay chords. All I knew was a G and a yeah, C. Yeah, and, yeah, totally. And that was a, a world away because I never left the first three frets. I didn't even know anything existed. I didn't know why all these, like you said about the 12 notes, I didn't know why all these other frets were there. And it's interesting how all of a sudden you'll see somebody and then just this revelation happens and you go, oh, my God, like, there's other things I could do. And you start playing something that sounds like something, and now you're on cloud nine, ready to go. And you, like me, learning how to play by ear. That's one thing I wish the younger generation would be able to do more, but... They have all these facilities around them. Yeah, know, and if you don't do it. start trying to
1: figure it out by ear, you're doing yourself a disservice. You know what I mean? Because you're not going to be able to reason through things without referencing something online. You know? Absolutely. So literally, it's the same thing too. It's like you need to go cut your teeth in a cover band and play a bunch of sh- shitty parties. Yep. Sorry, you just yep. do. You're going to have to learn how to play with people and outside of the machine. Yep. And figure some stuff out by ear. You know, you're going to figure out some stuff wrong. I mean, as a kid, you learn to play a bunch of songs and you think you got it. And then as later on as an adult, you go back to learn that, play that song. And you're like, oh, I played it completely wrong when I was 14 or 15.
0: That's right. And what's interesting about that is, to be honest, because this is a discussion that I have a lot with people, is in my mind, because we did grow up the way we did, it doesn't matter to me whether it's exact or not. It's never bothered me. Like, I remember going back, I was playing in a band a few years ago where we were doing Tooth and Nail. By Dawkins. And I hadn't done that song in a while. And I found a video of Lynch doing Tooth and Nail. He was teaching it. And I'm like, oh, cool. So I'll just learn it from Lynch. And I'm learning it. I'm watching him and I'm going, this isn't that Tooth and Nail. Whatever he's playing is the Tooth and Nail of George Lynch of 1997. Right, right. The, whatever he remembers is not the original version. Yeah. So even he didn't remember how he originally
1: did it. George is always notorious for kind of evolving a song as it goes. You yeah. know what I mean? Where other guys, if it was a Rhodes tune, the guitar riff was the same. There are right. some songs he'd take liberties with solos, but otherwise, this is it. And other guys, like Zeppelin, right. it, the song will never be the same way twice. Right. right. And then, yeah, so Lynch, I always dug seeing them because it'd be like a little different. The, That's a The right. solo or the guitar part or whatever. So he's such a stud. Dude. Yeah. I mean, that was a Big guy for all of us in the late 80s. Yeah,
0: one of my favorites, absolutely. And that was the thing was, you either, for us growing up the way we did, you did the best to learn the song as best you can, and then you would take the liberties on top of that to do whatever it is you do, and that's kind of who you become. I think that's how you become a player. One million percent agree with you, where now people are, well, you got to play it exact, well, then you're missing out on all those other things, because... Like you, like me, you're sitting there learning these songs. Like I remember learning Dio and Ozzy and Iron Maiden. I didn't know anything about theory, but I'm thinking everything is like one, three, five, or three, five, seven, or five, seven, nine. There was always this whole step motion to the song. So when I was going to learn a Scorpions tune, I already knew going in.
1: Oh, absolutely. It was going to be that yeah. shape. Absolutely. It became like this shape game. Yes. You said, the band tune down a half step or were they mm-hmm. normal? That's right the shape shifting was a big deal for me because I didn't understand the theory or the notes at first either. I could write songs and I could figure out my version of songs. And I remember being in a band with this drummer friend of mine, he a horn player. So he knew all the theory from studying at school and all this kind of stuff. So when I was trying to get into music school, I did my audition tape and I get the little packet for your theory test. I'm like, oh my God, I'm screwed. I don't know any of this. So I would ask him all, so how do you build a harmonic minor scale, starting right. on C. <laughs> and you're he would great. tell me the notes, and I would fill it in and send it to school, and I got accepted. And then when you get to school, they retest you anyway, so you're screwed, oh, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> so I made it my goal. Theory became my new life video game, because I wanted to understand it. I wanted to be good at it. So... They have the advanced group of the theory guys who know everything, and then they have the guys that don't know Jack. So after that initial test, I got put in the the Jack group. (laughs) Right. So my goal was to get to the nerds as quick as I could. So by the end of the first quarter, I was in Nerdville, but I I studied it so hard that I just accepted it all as fact. I didn't understand why I could tell you anything. I just memorized everything. Well, that's the minor third of this because of that, but it didn't sink in how I'd be using that yet. Right. So that was a whole nother adventure.
0: And it's true, like... There's the real world, which I always call the theory of rock and roll, I always call it, which is this weird...
1: It's the key of rock, Yeah, that's what it is.
0: (laughs) And always reminding students, too, that you need a little bit of both depending on what your journey is going to be. Because just because you can talk a talk doesn't mean you can walk the walk. And like you said earlier, which is so important, is getting yourself in a band where you learn how to walk the walk. You learn how to take these things, and all of a sudden you got a solo that you're going to do, or you learned this solo in detail, and now you broke your B-string you got to figure it out, man. I hope you're enjoying this episode so far and you're getting motivated to take your guitar playing to the next level. Please do me a favor and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help the show grow and reach more rock stars like you who want to improve their guitar playing. Also, I'd love to know what parts of the episode you liked as well as what you learned, so please share this podcast and tag us at guitarzoom.com on your social post. And now let's get back to the podcast.
1: It's okay to get in a room with a bunch of other guys and suck for a little bit and kind of slug it out and figure no. it out how to not suck. And that's how your band gets gigs. That's right. <laughs> you know? that's right. I remember having kids, too, say, uh, How do you get your band ready for a gig? I'm all easy, book the gig. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Set a <laughs> so deadline. You have no choice. Mm. That's right. Yeah, you're right. Somewhere out in the middle of those two worlds is, is where it all exists. I sometimes, too, reason uh, theory and being a lover of theory and a super nerd. Theory also just gave excuses to a lot of things, and especially when it gets to fusion and jazz and stuff that has interesting twists and turns that more discerning ears would enjoy. Sure, <laughs> So sure. not the rock and rollers. Sometimes it just reasons its way. It gives you ways to explain why that works. Right. Other times you could just enjoy it, not worry about why it's working or why it's not working, unless that's your your whole study.
0: It's but. always interesting. You think of artists like
1: Alan Holdsworth
0: or whoever it might be, and it Ooh. would be nice to know... Yeah. When he's doing his thing, or when he was doing his thing, mm. was he working on the random side? Yeah. And obviously, was a player it, of that caliber, caliber is probably thing. doing it yeah. all. But I always thought that was one of my biggest frustrations with like guitar magazines would interview these people and ask them about their gear and their shoe size and whatever, and ask them whatever riff of a song. But I always wanted to know what was going on inside their brain. Like,
1: yeah, how are you thinking about what you're doing? My second cool guitar was an Alan Holdsworth signature Ibanez. Oh, cool. I was very fortunate to be at music school where he did a little clinic and played. And like, Chad Wackerman was 23 yeah. years old. Oh my goodness. And so I'm 19, right? Yeah. Alan Holdsworth, who knows how young he was or whatever. But it just blew my mind. His He did chords. So that made me actually, a cross between him and Jakey Lee, made me work on my finger reach, right? Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> so... Because Jake would be like using his thumb at the fifth fret and (laughs) his I'm like, I'm going to be able to do that. And so the story that I heard was his father was a music teacher, but his father didn't play the guitar. So he would just tell him what notes were in the chords. He didn't have access to a book of shapes or whatever. So his first venture in doing some of these chords were finding the notes and making different shapes. And I thought, well, I mean, that's a great story. I don't know if it's true or not. You always wonder how did somebody arrive at their thing? Some guys can explain it to you.
0: Right. We live in a society now where it's okay to talk about it, where 30 years ago, nobody wanted to talk about anything because you were scared that somebody was going to steal your yeah. thing. You know, just like putting covers over your amp so nobody could see what you were oh, using dude, or whatever.
1: Dude, that's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. We covered ours because we all had shitty amps, shitty gear that didn't match. <laughs> so instead of a wall of marshals, your band had scrims. <laughs> right, front right. mismatched gear. Right. Yeah, I remember there was a guitar player. I'm going to call him out. I'm going to say his name Blue Saraceno, right? Okay. And so, Blue Seracino was a hotshot guitar guy. I remember he came and did a clinic, and he put tape over the Marshall settings. He put tape over it. And then when the clinic, he got up from the clinic when everybody applauded at the end. He went straight back, ripped the tape off, and zeroed everything. Like, he had this magic setting. Oh,
0: my God.
1: It sounded amazing. He does sound amazing. Yeah, he just knew how to dial his amp. It's interesting. Some guys just can sit there and play a couple things and know what they want out of each control of an amp and spend five minutes and all of a sudden have this amp sound amazing. I've met a couple guys that can do it in a couple minutes. Richie Faulkner, old school tube amp. He just knows what he needs to hear on a couple spots and dial in an amp. Frank Hannon could do it on any amp, and then it just sounds like him, no matter what. So those are the guys I think of off the top that can just do that, where other guys will tweak for hours and days.
0: Well, and you think about techniques like that. So we talk about George Lynch or something, somebody who has real signature sounds. And back in the day, nobody would really talk about that. Now we know all these different techniques that these people can do, and we still don't sound like them. They're a culmination of all of these different artists that you love. And that's the fun of it. Even for me being a teacher, there's not a day that goes by that I'm not out on YouTube or something learning something new.
1: Yeah, you can learn something every day. I'll bring George up again one more time. I remember somebody saying, he's so signature. I go, it doesn't matter what amp he's playing. George can play a Dan Electro guitar plugged into a Gorilla half stack, and he's going to sound just <laughs> right. like George Lynch. Right, It's right. the crappiest gear in the store you can find. He's going to sound like George. Right. That's the way it is. So right. that's when I would use the term, less jaw, more paw. Let's right. not talk about the gear. Let's just play.
0: That's, that's <laughs> so. a perfect thing. That's right. <laughs> so I know this connection to Tesla that you had, but let's get there from some of the bands. What were some bands that you were playing with when you were younger, and how did you wind up playing with Tesla?
1: Yeah, and so I was a stunt double for Dave Rude, and Dave Rude became the ultimate permanent replacement for Tommy Skio, And he's been with the band for a decade now, and right. he's a perfect fit. He's like so much younger than the other guys, but literally he's like a heavy metal hippie, just like those guys, right? Sure. It's, it's hilarious. He fits perfect. A super great guy, too. So slugging it out in some bands and a heavier band. Like, we loved, like, the early Metallica and, and all that kind of stuff. So I was, like, in a, a metal band. Okay, so check this out. I was in a metal band in Sacramento called Heathen. Everybody was waiting for that band to break up so they could steal the name, literally. (laughs) (laughs) So I went away to music school, and then out of the Bay Area came the New Heathen. And the drummer was a friend of mine. He goes, yeah, we were just waiting for you guys to break up so we could take the name. (laughs) I'm like, oh shit, no wonder. So then I went to music school. I came back, and I joined this local band that already had an EP. And they were a heavier band. During that evolution, we became more of like a hair band. So all through the 80s, that band was called Winch. And that band had two different record deals and got shelved twice. And I tried to explain to a kid what that was. Back in the day, these labels would sign a dozen bands and throw a bunch of money at production and publishing deal and all this kind of stuff. And then they would decide when they heard all the records, which ones were actually going to get released and which ones they were going to market and which ones they were going to shelf. So taking a write-off of a couple hundred grand by shelving a few bands was no big deal to them. But it would ruin a band's career. That's right. Because you also were locked into the right material that you recorded. So you'd have to make sure that you kept the rights to your tunes and you could go re-record them somewhere else. So we did an album, recorded at Hollywood Sound, which was this amazing studio. Like Sly and the Family Stone had done stuff there, Fleetwood Mac. I mean, just like the history of this 70s wood-looking studio, right? Sure. And so we got to do a record. We got signed to this Artful Balance label, which was a subsidiary. It was a Warner affiliate, I think. And so Davey Johnstone from Elton John was our producer. So I remember he flew to Sacramento from L.A., came and saw us play at this place called the El Dorado Saloon. You'd be playing cover tunes. The dance floor is packed. We see Davey walk in. We start playing our songs, right? Right. (laughs) He liked the tunes, and he agreed to the fee, and so he produced our record. So it was him, Guy Babylon, who was the keyboard player for Elton John. So imagine how good wow. you are if you're Elton John's keyboard player. And then he had his singer and his side band called, his name, Billy Trudell, as a vocal coach to help us sound like we were amazing on background vocals, right? right. And so we did a record, and then that, they decided just to shelve it at the end. So we got stuck with this material. A couple of years later, the studio calls us goes, hey... These two-inch tapes are still here. Nobody paid the final bill. Do you guys want to buy the tapes? We're like, no, we don't have any money. (laughs) Right. And they go, well, we're starting a production company. So what do you think about coming down and doing a demo? And let's see what happens. So we went down, did basically like live demos of uh, a bunch of new material. They like some things about it. And they go, what they didn't like, they told us. So we actually decided to make some personnel changes (laughs) at that point. So there was two bands in the town that were both had been seen by a bunch of labels and rejected by a bunch of labels. Right. (laughs) We stole the rhythm section from that band <laughs> and put them in the R band, which had two guitars and a vocals, and became this band called Sour Milk Sea. And we actually wrote, it sounded like five different bands, wrote five different ways. So literally, it was like that post, it's like the post 80s thing, grunge had already ruined rock and roll for everybody, or changed the landscape permanently. Sure. So you couldn't dress up to play anymore. You had to look like you just got off work. Right. That was how you went to right, a show. Right, right. So we had this band, we went down and and we had this guy named Martin Smelsley was the producer, engineer. And he had done all the, like the Sam Hain and Danzig stuff, all on super budget. They had hired him. So we actually stayed at his house. We stayed at like my brother-in-law's house. We slept on whatever floor we could. We recorded a whole nother record, which I was really happy with. And then this production company mixed it kind of funny and shopped a couple of tunes and didn't get what they wanted. So they just cut us loose. That kind of took the wind out of everybody's sails. We got back home. Everybody's like, oh, it's your fault. It's your fault. We all went our separate ways. Right. I was going to get into a solo thing at that point. I had done three little solo tapes, instrumental stuff. And I just did one each year at Christmas. They were Christmas songs, but they weren't real Christmas songs. They were my Christmas songs. Right. So we had like Dashing Through the Mall, stuff like that. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> so Slim Fast Santa. I recorded those. And so I was like, okay, maybe I'll just open a little recording studio, right? So I started recording other bands and trying to get good on that side of the board. In that, I discovered a love for this industrial thing. I was obsessed with the first Nine Inch Nails record. So I started recording me banging on stuff not realizing that I needed samplers. And so a buddy of mine, we started writing together. We became a band called Hurt. It was just the two of us. And we were a duo. Well, you were going to take turns singing and take turns playing guitar. Well, it was interesting because I'm the guitar guy and he's a guitar guy who's going to sing? Neither of us could sing very well. And so in industrial, it really didn't matter. Sure. <laughs> so sure. we we're going to so he's singing through a half stack anyways. Ended up, he enjoyed singing more and, and I liked playing the guitar, but it was weird because he was a former student of mine, right? Okay. So a majority of the songs were his guitar riffs and my vocals and my lyrics. So okay. he had to sing my lyrics and I had to play his guitar riff. So it was fun. And then we hired this keyboard kid at work at the music store. I go, look, I'm trying to learn Cubase. I'm trying to do some sequencing. and. Blah, blah, blah. And he's like a super Depeche Mode kid, right? Right. He comes over on a console basis, right? And he like heard the riffs and he's like, he'd never heard anything like this. He didn't grow up in rock. You know, right. he liked Erasure and all that stuff. So he's all, just let me program something to this. I'm like, okay. So he became our guy. He was oh, in the wow. band. <laughs> wow. Yeah. All the drums are programmed. We're like, we don't want to just play to a machine live. So this other guy, Mike, who's in a band that I produced a couple demos for called Violence and Bloom, he came over to be the other guitar player. We were doing everything on seven strings or super drop-down tuning. We had a lot of fun, but it was so early in that. Things like, how do you play this live? So, literally, we had a backing tracks on a DAT tape, and you'd send that out to the front of house, right? Right. And then pray that you could hear that in the monitors. That's right. And then we went to ADATs, so where you could have the same send to your own monitor system and the identical send at the same time to go front of house, let them do whatever they want, because you had to have your own monitors. You couldn't trust anything and then god forbid the power go out (laughs) which it did before it wasn't like being in a garage band so that band got a lot of label attention and we did our first, it was a demo, just the two of us, three of us, basically. And then we used that to get these other two guys in the band. We got a drummer so we could sound big live. And then we ended up a friend of a friend, a former student, worked for team in L.A. Uh, one was a famous songwriter and the other was a manager. So that was Destiny Productions. The management managed Steve Vai. And I said, well, here's the deal. Devin was on Steve's record. And Devin's got this band, Strapping Young Lad. And we really like the huge wall of sound on, on the city. Sure. And I know that he produced some other bands. Could you give him our tape? She goes, yeah. So I get a phone call from Devin at the house and nobody had cell phones. Devin's all, hey, is this Tommy? I'm like, yeah. He goes, this is Devin Townsend. I'm like, yeah, sure. But he goes, yeah, no, I heard the thing. I'd be willing to help you guys do a demo. So legitimately, Foundations Forum was the big metal thing in LA where bands could showcase and all that. The last one that ever happened, I think, was in 97. And when Devin, strapping young lad in a van, driving up from LA up I-5, stopped in Rio Linda, where I lived at the time, at my students. So a studio was at my house. Okay. So we borrowed ADATs, right? Linked them all together to make a right. 24, borrowed some outboard gear. And Devin shows up on a Sunday night. We had never met. We sat there and chatted for a few minutes. He told the band, it's cool. You can leave me here. They got back on the road and left him there. Oh my gosh. Devin was at my house until Friday I flew him back home. So part of the deal was we, we had a fee and then we had to fly him home. So he couldn't remember the name of Rio Linda. So he kept calling it St. Agnes. Okay, And he's all, where are we? St. Agnes? Everything had an ore, like it was evil, like it was uh, the compressor. And he had never seen sprinklers before. So the pop-up sprinklers at Watery Lawn, and he's all, that was the sprinkler. (laughs) It was the evil sprinkler (laughs) spreading water across the nation. We had a blast. So we did eight songs, tracked, mixed everything in four days. The first day was ringing out the room, which he goes, man, this room sounds horrible. So everything was in cans. And he had just finished a solo thing called Biomech, which has, Ocean Machine was what it was called at first, but then it was Biomech. So he kept using that as a reference. So it was awesome. We did that, and then all of a sudden that got us a bunch of write-ups in uh, magazines and uh, Metal Edge. It's like, ooh, bands on the rise, that kind of thing. The next record, ourselves, based on what we thought we learned from Devin. So the production was not as good, but the songs were better. Right. And then that's when the labels started courting. So we woulda, coulda, shoulda been. We almost became famous. Right. You know?
0: And this was called Hurt? Can I hear this anywhere?
1: Yeah. You can go to Hurt 916. You can find it on iTunes. Okay. So we did the record with Devin, which is called Porn Star. We did the record on our own, which is called Godlike. Then we got a production deal, several production deals. So we ended up taking all the stuff from all the production deals and doing three EPs at the same time. One's called Sex, one's called Drugs, and the other one's called Rock and Roll. So that was like some stuff that was produced by Frank Cannon, who was helping some bands for some labels. And Frank and I just knew each other from the scene, but we'd never really hung out, but he liked it, so it was really cool to do that. We got signed to a production deal 30,30, and then some other stuff. So those three became a collection of that. Then we went into hiding and did an album that I'd call The Breakup. We decided to change the way we were going to write. I stepped down from being a control freak to being a control enthusiast, (laughs) which let other people be involved that maybe weren't involved in some of the writing process before. Learning to share the ball. And that was really fun work. And so we ended that with doing a show or two, and then we just didn't like each other much anymore. We figured if we probably stayed together, we wouldn't be friends. So then I decided after a short period of time, I was going to quit completely. So... I sold all my Hurt guitars. I sold every guitar, every piece of gear. I held the record at Skips for the most used gear brought into their sales event and most gear sold. I sold all my ADATs. I sold everything. And I was done. And so two guitars I thought I couldn't sell if I tried. One that I drilled holes in or had tape all over them or whatever. And that was it. So my wife and I went into the salon and spa business. And we opened a full-service salon and spa. A couple years of research and development. Gambled everything on doing that. So during that process... I hadn't played with anybody in a handful of years, and we went to see a, a friend of mine's acoustic band. So at, at this a, point, a,
0: you're really not playing at all then, right? You have nothing, no, so
1: No, I was, I was teaching. I was playing enough to teach okay. uh, part-time. So I'd pick up a guitar, and I'd play, but I wasn't out doing anything. I wasn't writing. I wasn't recording. And so this went on for a few years, and then I was out seeing these friends play, and they go, hey, you know, our other guitar player left. That's why our buddy's filling in. So I had a couple of beers, and I'm like, well, I'll, I'll do that. So I obligated myself to learn a bunch of 80s tunes on acoustic guitar real quick. That was a cover band called No Bozos with some friends of mine. So next thing you know, I'm playing in that cover band, then I'm playing again, a lot. And that evolved into, I got a call from Brian Wheat from Tesla. He has a side band called Soul Motor. And Soul Motor is heavier than Tesla. It's, each one of those guys has their own band. It's a totally different. It's more of them. So he has a great singer named Darren. He has this cool... So their first record had Tommy McClendon on it. I don't know if you know who Tommy M is. He was a guitar player in UFO in the 80s. Okay. He, he's a guy out of Stockton. He's a Japanese guy. Freaking retarded guitar player. Sorry to use that word, but it's ridiculous. Everybody in Northern California knew who, who Tommy M was, right? He's buddies with Akira Takasaki. They both played killer guitars. When I got this call, hey, we need somebody to learn these tunes and maybe do a couple shows, write some songs. I'm like, okay. So in lieu of me taking lessons from Tommy McClendon, I have to figure out his record, right? So I'm up for the challenge, right? Right, right. And so uh, that was really fun. So I I learned these tunes and played a show. They were still trying to figure out who the drummer was going to be. The first drummer was Dave Buckner from Papa Roach. He had left Papa Roach, so it was Hanging out in a room with a couple multi-platinum dudes, right, which right. is fun, but we're playing this music over here, and the singer Darren was really good, so that evolved, too. We ended up with a different drummer, ended up writing a whole nother record, re-recording two records worth of material. Apparently, they're still going to release it, but... That put me closer to the circle. And I guess that's how I got the Tesla call. So Makes there's sense. a long way around to that story. I get a call one day from Brian. He goes, hey, what are you doing next April 17th? And this is like in October or something. The only thing going on around that time is taxes. I'll let you know how bad it is when I get there. And he said, you got a passport? I'm like, yeah, I got a passport. And he goes, you're in Tesla. I'm like, what? So he goes, yeah, well, listen, Dave and his wife are pregnant. And she's going to be having a kid around that time. So we needed somebody to fill in for Dave. And Frank mentioned you. So I'll give you a list. I'm like. Okay, let me check my calendar. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I could make it work. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, who wouldn't love to play those songs? So that was fun. Super greatest bunch of guys. And so I agreed to do just a, a couple European shows, right? And just they're going on there for two shows. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. It's great. And then I get the call from Dave saying, you know what? Can you do the Monsters of Rock cruise too? I would hate to be out at sea without cell phone reception. I'm all, yeah, you should be home for the birth of your child. Yeah, right. <laughs> that added a couple more shows. So I was going to be out doing that. So we we're out on the road doing a little soul motor run in between these two things, but the cruise ship was my first show with those guys. And in preparing for that, they neglected to tell me at first, oh, by the way, one of the shows on that ship is the acoustic show, the five-man acoustic jam. I'm like, oh, yeah, you guys are famous for that. Okay, that would make sense. Yeah, well, some of the songs are different arrangements and different keys, but all right, we'll see you out there. <laughs> so, So I'm super cheap. I mean, a good acoustic guitar costs money, right? Right. I mean, you could spend five grand and still have a crappy acoustic guitar. That's right. And so I don't own a good acoustic guitar. I have a Yamaha APX that's just fine for playing acoustic covers and having a good time and floating down the river. I had to borrow because I wasn't going to show up to this pro bands rehearsal with my (laughs) Yamaha (laughs) APX. So I had to borrow a nice guitar from somebody. And I did. So it was fun. I learned everything. I got together. Frank went through a couple like intricacies that he wanted me to know. So we got together to do one rehearsal. We rehearsed in the daytime like civilized humans. I'm like, well, I've never done that. We had to work all day and you rehearse at night. So it's an 1130 rehearsal at Frank's house in the garage. So there I am in Frank's garage with the whole band. And we go down the list and we just play everything. I thought we were just getting together to see where we're at. We could go play right now. (laughs) That's awesome. I said, well, you told me to learn the stuff. And Dave helped me out. I'm actually doing this on that part and all that. Super great. It was a fun gig for sure. And you're right. Like
0: you just said, showing up prepared is everything. And that's how you get other gigs is being the guy that they know.
1: If you get called for a gig, know your part. You know, like, hey, how's that go? Nobody wants that guy. That's right.
0: So where's the transition? Like, when does EMG come into the play? Pretty
1: quick. Pretty quick after that, actually. So the next year after that thing, a buddy, I'm playing with, show with Soul Motor, my buddy Scott from EMG, we'd known each other for 30 years. He's the sales guy there. He was. And he said, hey, uh, we need AR guy at EMG. Do you know anybody? I'm like, no. And he's all, well, what are you doing? I'm like, I have three jobs. I'm in five bands. I cut hair. I teach guitar. <laughs> And I'm in a a wedding band. I'm in Soul Motor. I'm in an 80s cover band. I didn't even throw the wedding band stuff in there. So they actually just came after me. They said, look, why don't you come interview? We'll offer you a position, blah, blah, blah. And so I I mentioned to my wife. So we'd worked for ourselves. So they came up with a position for me, and we were ready for a change geographically. So I took a chance. Quite interesting gig. What does an AR guy do? Well, it turns out everything I've ever done adds up to a pretty decent skill set that makes me pretty good for the position. But when I got there, they just went, okay, here's your office, here's the computer. Why don't you email every artist and let them know who you are? I'm like, wow, <laughs> there's like <laughs> thousands of these guys. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> don't mass mail anybody. I'm like, okay. So I had an individual, you know, I made a couple templates, you know, and right. a couple different ones and spent weeks emailing everybody individually. When I got there, I have decided, okay, I'm going to go to this company. I'm going to just dig myself deep in every project that I can there to make right. myself as useful as possible and make it harder for them to get rid of me. Right, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's what I would do anywhere I would go, I think. But yeah, so I do a lot of stuff there. I've been fortunate to get to help the boss with some product development, developing some signature sets, developing some other products for the market. It's an interesting gig. Yeah, but now it's been seven years now.
0: Wow, that's great.
1: It was weird. I moved 120 miles from being in five bands. I went to being at zero bands. Back to that break in life where you don't really play. So as soon as I got here, one of the first artists I had to film at EMG TV was Alexi Leho. Oh, gotcha. And And I've seen that video. Yeah. And we became fast friends. we bullshit about 80s. So I played guitar and he looked over and he goes, you can play. I'm all, well, I mean, everybody can play guitar. (laughs) (laughs) The guy behind the camera can play guitar. The guy in the control room can play guitar. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody plays guitar. He goes, no, you can play. He kept trying to put in his head, he goes, did you play guitar on the Danger Danger record? I go, no, dude, that's Andy Timmons. <laughs> there's other players. He kept trying to like put me as like, you're this 80s dude that was on a record, and I just don't know it. I'm all, yeah. no, I'm not bullshitting you. <laughs> I just not in any of those bands. We just became really good friends. You know, there we are having some drinks, cranking rat, listening to 80s stuff. So several months later, we're having a chat. He goes, man, I've been racking my brain who I'm going to use for this thing. So he goes, come play guitar with me at this thing in Finland. I'm like, let me check my schedule. <laughs> so literally, I had been at EMG six months. I didn't even know if I had enough vacation. Sure. Right? Sure. He invited me to be a one of the section leaders in this 100 Guitars from Hell.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So that's H-E-L, Helsinki. So he had five guys. It was me... Archie from Santa Cruz, Sammy Albana from Law Society, and these two other guys that I can never remember their names because they're these traditional Finnish names. Amazing players, but it was a pretty diverse cross-section of guys. We were considered the core band, and he had his drummer friend from Bodum, and then this other bass guy from this other popular Finnish band. And so we got together, played this tune. These kids auditioned ages 14 to 49, right, from all over the world, and 100 were chosen, right? And so they came to Finland, And so each of his section leaders had 20 players. Your parts weren't the same as the other sections. You know, it was a whole orchestrated metal song that's like 17 minutes long, right? Right. Or 15 minutes long. And so you rehearsed with your section. Then we all rehearsed in this big room together. And then you're like the mentor. So you'd go outside. And I had a Finnish Olympic runner in my group. He was like famous in Finland. So they'd want to interview him at everything we did. So he was also like this much taller than everybody in the group. You could see all these kids and you see this guy like this tall. (laughs) So I take these guys outside and go, okay, any last questions? And he goes, yeah, I have a question. Anybody ever tell you you look like Steve Stevens? I'm all, yes. (laughs) Anybody have any questions about the song that we're playing? (laughs) (laughs) These kids all knew the parts as good, if not better, than we're supposed to be in charge. He worked really hard. It was an amazing experience. I had been so lucky and so fortunate to get called to do a few things. It's really weird to have the highs that high, and then you come home and you're like, oh, am I just going to go be in my cover band again? So that's a struggle, I think, probably for anybody. You know, I had a couple of conversations with Alexi before he passed. He'd say, so did you figure out what you're doing yet? Are you playing again? And I go, no. And he goes, you'll figure it out. So yeah, legitimately during the shutdown is when I picked up my guitar again. I'd pick it up at work, do things. So during the shutdown, I started teaching a few people again, just online. And then I had been invited to do a couple collaborations, so it forced me to have to play again. Literally, I was back in one of those breaks where I just set it all down, and I played only for work purposes and not for fun anymore, So which is a drag. It's a drag to lose that element of fun so you have to go, well, why did I pick this thing up in the first place? And I remember people, oh, so I picked it up so I could be in a band and get chicks. That was never it. I just thought these bands were like the coolest thing ever and being able to play songs. And then once the first time you ever get in a room with people and play it, I remember the first time I ever played with a drummer. I was like, you couldn't have smacked that smile off my face. Right. With all the power in the world. There was no way. I was just like, it was the biggest charge. You know what I mean? So you have to remember those things, you That's know, to right. keep yourself engaged.
0: Well, and it's so, funny too, because when you've been doing a lot of stuff, You forget about those things. I did a clinic, a three-day clinic out in Nashville before COVID, the whole COVID thing. And there were like 50 people that we had reserved to show up for this three-day event. So they all come in and I said, okay, by the end of the three days, what's going to happen is we are all going to be playing together. And then you could see people just panic going, oh my God. So it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it was Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning where we were going to play together. So you know i 'm doing my whole normal talking thing with everybody and then answering questions, but then, when I would get off the stage, the first thing people would do is go i don 't know what to do i don 't want to do this i 'm really nervous and we spent that sunday i said here 's what 's going to happen is if you have any ability at all to do something else, like if you play drums or you can sing what we 're going to do is we 're just going to pick some songs and we 're going to get together and we 're going to go up there and just start playing together and It started off a little slow you know i 'd play bass or i 'd play drums, and then somebody would come up and try and sing. And once about 30 minutes into this thing, you could see these people, and all of them are 30 to 60 years old, right? And all of a sudden, they're getting in together in groups going, hey, I'll sing on your song if you play guitar on my song. And I had to close this thing down at five in the afternoon, and they were still trying to go. And I'm like, no, 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 they're going to charge us for another day if I don't. Right, we got to (laughs) go. Yeah, we got to (laughs) go. It's always been fascinating to me how people think they have to be at some level before they can be ready to play with other people. If you can convince them that it isn't, I mean, I'm not saying that it isn't about that, because you and I both struggle, I'm sure, with perfectionism on multiple levels of things. But if you can get them to get together and play together and have some fun, all of a sudden they start realizing that you don't have to be the next Randy Rhodes or you don't have to be the next Ingve Malmsteen, unless that's what you want to do with your life.
1: Yeah. Being a teacher for years, too, is getting people just to play with other people. And then once they do... It's, they're off to the races. That's which right. is great. It's so fun. You know what I mean? Of course it's scary. You know, especially if there's other people watching. But I mean, you get together with your friends and play. Make some noise. Yeah. It's like, That's it right. Make some people mad. Do That's it. That's right.
0: Well, and the fun thing is, is if <laughs> once you start playing, you realize that when you're on stage and things are that loud, yeah, everything doesn't have to be as perfect as you thought yeah. it was. I always tell people when I was growing up, you know, I started playing in 1983, so I was growing up in the time of Satriani and Vi and Eddie Van Halen and all this stuff. Oh, the bar was very high. The bar was impossibly high. So you're practicing 10 hours a day going, well, that's what I got to be. And then you get out in a band and start playing and you start going,
1: how come everybody else isn't? Their bar wasn't that high. The bar for guitar at that point was very high. I remember getting to music school. I went to MI in 1985. So I get there and they're like, hey, have you met this? Have you seen this kid? play. He just graduated. He's going to be teaching some classes here. His name is Paul Gilbert. I'm like, no, I haven't seen him. Right. Holy crap. Yes. <laughs> this is where you start meeting kids that are younger than you that have been playing. They put in the hours. Yes. You know, that was another lesson to learn early too. It's like you meet a kid about the same age or younger than you and his ability is beyond you. It's like, okay, well he played four hours a day for two years and he played one hour a day for a year. It's the hour. You got to right. put in the time and that time can be done in different ways. I remember the first week of music school they call it the trout look. Because you walk around with your mouth open. <laughs> it's like
0: <laughs> All the talent. God, I, I can't imagine.
1: Dude, yeah, this kid in my class, Danny Gill, amazing guitar player. I, I'm I know surprised Danny, more yeah. people don't know. Do you know who Danny yeah. is? Yeah, he's a badass. So I used to sit and watch him and Paul like battle it out over jam over a journey. He took lessons from some dude named Joe Satriani, and we, we hadn't <laughs> heard of yet. Joe hadn't really hit yet. He right, was, right. He was playing in a breakup song. Oh, Greg Ken. Yeah, he was playing in Greg Ken yep. and he was a Barry guy and so I remember the first time I heard his record, I heard Not of This Earth, like in 86 or 87, whenever it came out, and a drummer turned me onto it. He's like, have you heard of this guy? I'm like, no. So he gives me cassette tape, and I was just like, again, back to the trout look. That was a freaking great record, though. Yes. First record. Yes. Totally agree. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks, man. I don't want to take up your whole day here, but thanks I- Thanks appreciate- for having- we, I See, we can bullshit all day. I know. Day. That's, what, that's <laughs> the thing is you get on these things and you keep going. <laughs> But, yeah, I thank you so much for taking your time today and hanging out with me. And
1: oh, absolutely. I, hopefully, this is some usable material. Cool. I don't know what people look for in podcasts. I haven't. I just enjoy talking
0: to people and let people in on my world of talking to you like we would if we were sitting around together anyway. Awesome. Yeah. So, all right. Well, you have a great day, and I'll obviously stay in touch. I've probably got another collab coming up soon that
1: you and I all can right. do. All so. right. Well, let me know. All right. And we'll talk soon. All right. All right. Take don't care, freeze my to death out there. Awesome. Bye. <laughs> See ya.
0: If you enjoyed today's podcast and want to learn guitar even faster, go to GuitarZoom.com and click the Get Started button to get access to courses that are right for your interest and skill level. Again, go to GuitarZoom.com and click the Get Started button.